0: Good evening. Mayor de Blasio pleads for New Yorkers to turn down their air conditioning as thousands lose power in Brooklyn. Is climate change driving the heat waves across the country and contributing to a border crisis? And New York City passes its budget, but not everybody's happy. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 30th, 2021. In breaking news, a short while ago, Mayor Bill de Blasio asked New Yorkers to limit power usage as the intense heat wave continued into a fourth day. The mayor said the city was seeing a number of localized outages across
1: the boroughs, including in Williamsburg, where 1,700 customers were without power. We have a real challenge on our hands. So here's the message to all New Yorkers. Immediately, immediately reduce the use of electricity in your home or in your business This is very serious stuff. We need to ensure that our electric supply is protected. We need to avoid any possible disruptions. We've all experienced that and know how problematic it can be, what a problem for all of us can be if electricity is disrupted in any way. This is a chance for all New Yorkers to do something about it. So, specifically, from this point on through the afternoon, through the entire evening, and until you wake up in the morning, we're asking people to... Reduce the use of air conditioning. Turn it off if you can turn it off, but certainly bring it down uh, much. I mean, let me be clear. Less air conditioning, set it at a higher temperature if you need the air conditioning. We're asking people to avoid any of the things that use a lot of electricity appliances that are particularly electricity intense like washers and dryers, microwaves. The important thing to realize is we're at the end of this heat wave, but it really has added up. We're very hopeful the heat will break uh, in the early morning hours tomorrow, but we've got to get to that point safely. So we need everyone to turn things down, turn things off immediately. Don't have lights on if you don't need them. Again, this message goes to folks about their homes and their businesses, and it is an urgent message. When you wake up in the morning, as of now, we expect things to be much more normal and you can go about your normal activities. But we need people to take steps right now to protect against any outages. And as the mayor, the city's commissioner
0: of emergency management is John Scavani. He says reducing power usage is critical to preventing more outages, as is currently affecting Williamsburg and scattered areas around the city.
2: The first major outage that we're dealing with is in uh, Brooklyn, in the uh, Williamsburg section. There are about 1,700 customers without power. Con Edison and the emergency management team are out there assisting the neighborhood. Um, Con Edison is distributing dry ice at the corner of Nassau Avenue and Morgan Avenue. And we also have brought an MTA bus out there to serve as a mobile cooling center, which is parked at the same location. So if you do need any assistance from either Con Ed with dry ice to keep your food cold in the house, or if you do need to just get out and uh, sit in some place cold for a few minutes, you can get out and, and sit in the MTA bus, and thank you to the MTA for that support. There are some other localized outages in each borough, but there are none as significant as the one in Williamsburg, and with the mayor's message, we're hoping that with the conservation of energy that we will not be dealing with any more significant outages.
0: That's the city's Commissioner of Emergency Management, John Scavani. Today marked the fourth day of the heat wave with readings near 100 degrees. It was the hottest day since September 2015. The mayor also reminded New Yorkers that if they don't have access to air conditioners, the city has open cooling centers across the five boroughs. For more on how to beat the heat and access these services, call 311 or visit nyc.gov slash beattheheat. Meanwhile, the heat dome that caused the sweltering heat over the northwest this week is pushing north, bringing record temperatures to British Columbia and Saskatchewan, both provinces of Canada – There, they almost never see such high temperatures. Police in Vancouver say they've responded to 130 sudden deaths since last Friday. Nearly 250 deaths have been reported across the Pacific Northwest. In the usually cool region, 40% of homes don't have air conditioners, with price gougers taking advantage by selling air conditioning units in Washington for more than double the retail price. Meanwhile, in New York City, the temperature peaked at about 98 degrees at LaGuardia Airport, but with the humidity, it feels well over 100. The heat is expected to break in the early morning hours with intense rainstorms expected. Thursday's high will be about 83 degrees. Sounds cool with thunderstorms all day. Even President Joe Biden says the unusual heat waves so early in the summer are obviously the result of global warming. But North Carolina State University meteorologist Carl Schreck, who studies extreme and tropical weather, says the cause of the heat wave will take a few weeks for scientists to sort out. But he adds more weather extremes like the heat dome over the northwest are expected.
3: A heat dome is, we call it like a ridge of high pressure. So when air gets very hot, hot air expands. As the air near the surface gets hotter, it kind of pushes the atmosphere above it up higher as it expands and you get this large area of high pressure. And we especially look at it like about five miles up, uh, kind of gives us an idea of where the jet stream is. And when you have one of these heat domes or ridges, it pushes the jet stream way far to the north. And uh, you get really, you know, these really warm temperatures underneath it. And then because the jet stream gets pushed so far to the north, it kind of slows down the jet stream. And you get these patterns that kind of stick around a bit longer than they they usually would.
0: What do you think about the news reporting, you know, in general? Are they telling the story a little bit too heatedly for a hot story?
3: Uh, Lots of puns intended there. Um, Yeah. It really has been shattering all-time records for some of these locations. Portland, it was more than seven degrees above its all-time record. Not just barely breaking these records, but really shattering some of them. This is not Arizona or uh, Texas or Florida that are kind of somewhat used to the heat. I don't think it's overstated how significant an event this is. Is this about increased CO2 in the atmosphere, all the things we've been hearing about? We won't know for a while how much of an impact global warming had on this particular event. But what we can say is we know that global warming has been making extreme heat events stronger, longer lasting, and more frequent. And our computer models tell us that that's going to continue to happen. And we have been able to look at past heat waves in other areas and try to figure out... You know there's only one earth so it's kind of hard to know whether things would have happened without humans or not but in a computer model we have the advantage where we can run the earth as it is and then we can run the earth as it would have been without humans and we can see how often a particular heat wave happens in each of those scenarios for other heat waves in the past more often than not when they check one of these major heat waves it ends up being significantly stronger or uh, more frequent because of climate change
0: is this an inconvenience or how hot could it get
3: humans are really good at adapting it's not going to escalate out of control to become Venus but it is going to be increasingly these temperatures that they're experiencing in the Northwest humans can't survive outside for any length of time in those conditions. Yeah, eventually we'll build the infrastructure to have more air conditioning and so forth, but it'll be expensive and painful.
0: Can it be reversed? Could we change this if we had the right leadership?
3: Yes, it'll take time and things, even if we stopped emitting everything right now, the carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere will continue to warm the earth for a few decades, but it is something that we can fix eventually. My main research is actually tropical meteorology, uh, things like El Nino and La Nina and how those Uh affect us in the U.S. and also how they affect hurricanes. One of the things I do is look at every month when the National Centers for Environmental Information in NOAA put out their state of the climate report saying where was it hot, where was it cold. I try to look at what the main drivers were of that event. In a couple of weeks, I'll be looking back at this particular event and trying to figure out what were the main climate patterns that led to this extreme heat. And we'll
0: be checking back with Carl. He's the North Carolina State University meteorologist. His name is Carl Schreck. He works with NOAA, or NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Meanwhile, climate change is affecting the entire globe with unusually warm weather, even in Siberia. But one area that directly impacts the United States is the growing droughts and storms blasting Central America and contributing to the flow of migrants. According to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security today, officials officials said more than one million migrants have been arrested after illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border since last October. The Biden administration has continued to rely on a public health authority known as Title 42 that was put in place last year, allowing border authorities to swiftly turn back migrants apprehended at the border. Unaccompanied children are not subject to the policy. But journalist Todd Miller, author of "Bill Bridges, Not Walls and other books on the border, says a recent trip to the border by Vice President Kamala Harris was just a show. And the climate crisis driving the migrants north is getting worse.
4: The border, you can say, is in a perpetual crisis. It's designed to be in crisis. It's designed in such a way that people are forced into the desert. Where I live in Arizona, there are lots of people walking through the desert through 100-degree temperatures. The border has a thing called a consequence delivery system in which people will face um, incarceration if they cross the border right now there's uh, also, right now there's title forty two which is a pandemic era cDC order, which calls for rapid expulsions of people. This idea of the border suddenly being in crisis just now is a manufactured rhetorical point
0: we have a border that's designed to be in crisis perpetually the governor of south dakota which is on the other border a thousand miles away Chrissy noem has sent her national guard to texas to guard the border what's going on with that
4: it's just ridiculous it's the republicans again saying that there's a border crisis that this border crisis is because the biden administration took office Because the Biden administration has quote unquote open borders and that's not the truth at all. The Biden administration is definitely keeping the border fortified, is fortifying the border more, is calling for more technology, is even talking about building the wall even more in gaps, is detaining children. This sort of rhetorical game, which I think Republican governor sending National Guard to the border is the same theater. It's like the border itself has become a thea- theatrical production in which, you know, the, the different political parties can play out. this almost a game when the real issues, the real crisis, the perpetual crisis, the human rights crisis that's constant is just not addressed. The impacts of COVID on the economy and also the climate crisis, which is drought, but also these two back-to-back hurricanes. If you remember in 2020, there were two Category 4 hurricanes that nailed the coasts of Nicaragua and Honduras, and that has caused massive displacement. So the World Food Program has a report out that shows that hunger in Central America went from 2 million to nearly 8 million over the last year. That is the crisis, right? That is the crisis we're talking about. If hunger has spiked to this degree and they did a survey at the end of the year 2018 and they found that 8% of the people they surveyed had concrete plans to migrate north. In the beginning of 2021, in January, they did another survey that showed 15%. Of people. So nearly double, 15 percent had concrete plans to migrate. We're not looking at the root causes. When you look at the border, the border is a militarized response that's ignoring the root causes, ignoring the United States' responsibility okay. in
0: impacting some of those root causes that cause displacement to begin with. Because of unprecedented climate change and the response to it is a 19th century claim of America first.
4: That's the response right now, yeah. There's all these assessments and reports that come out of the Pentagon, that come out of Department of Homeland Security, that essentially say exactly what you just said. One of them says that the United States, because of massive climate displacement, and this is a Pentagon report looking at the worst possible climate scenario, they said that we'd have to build up defensive fortress, a defensive fortress, uh, fortress quote-unquote, to stop, quote-unquote, unwanted starving immigrants from mexico central america south america and the caribbean people are going to be displaced everywhere and that's why it's a concern everybody any sort of like repression of movement stopping of movement due to this sort
0: of displacement journalist todd miller he's the author of build bridges not walls and other books about the southern border he lives in arizona and Donald Trump's company and his long – well, I'm going to actually tell another story first. Very interesting tale. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court today uh, said that Bill Crosby could go free. And In fact, I'm looking right now at the news. It's breaking uh, – the highest court not only threw out Bill Crosby's sexual assault conviction and released him from prison today in a stunning reversal of fortune for the comedian once known as America's dad – they ruled that the prosecutor who brought the case was bound by his predecessor's agreement not to charge Crosby. Crosby, 83, flashed the V for Victory sign to a helicopter overhead as he trudged into his suburban Philadelphia home after serving nearly three years of a three to ten year sentence for drugging and violating Temple University sports administrator Andrea Constant in 2004. A former Cosby Show star, the first celebrity tried and convicted in the Me Too era, had no comment as he arrived and just smiled and nodded later at a news conference outside where his lawyer, Jennifer Bonjean, said, we are thrilled to have Mr. Cosby home. All right. And I wonder if the alleged victims are as thrilled. We'll find out, I guess, in the days to come. And Donald Trump's company in a another uh, area of celebrity wrongdoing or celebrity. Um we don't know if it's wrongdoing or not. It hasn't been proven as such, but it seems to be in that celebrity world. Donald Trump's company and his longtime finance chief are expected to be charged tomorrow with tax related crimes stemming from a New York investigation into the former president's business dealings. The news was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. The charges against the Trump Organization and the company's chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, appear to involve non-monetary benefits the company gave to top executives, possibly including use of apartments, cars, and school tuition. The charges against Weisselberg and the Trump Organization would be the first criminal cases to arise from the two-year probe led by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., a Democrat who leaves office at the end of the year. A grand jury was recently impaneled to weigh evidence, and New York Attorney General Letitia. James says she's assigning two of her lawyers to work with Vance on the criminal probe while she continues a civil investigation of Trump. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In the city, it's still the election that wasn't. The state Senate will hold hearings on the city board of elections after the board on Tuesday botched the ranked choice vote count by including more than 100,000 dummy ballots. On Wednesday afternoon, State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins vowed to reform the board, calling its ranked-choice vote tally mistake a national embarrassment. The Board of Elections admitted late Tuesday that it included 135,000 dummy ballots in its preliminary ranked-choice voting counts, an error that resulted in the board presenting inaccurate tallies and needing to redo the vote. Meanwhile... The campaign for Democratic mayoral candidate Eric Adams announced today it's filed a lawsuit in King's County Supreme Court for a judge to oversee and review ballots, if necessary, from the June 22nd primary. The move in itself is not unusual when ballots are being counted, but this time it comes after a glitch in the ranked choice voting count for the Democratic Party nomination for mayor that originally showed Adams well ahead. And then suddenly, barely ahead of the third place candidate, followed by an admission by the Board of of Elections, that they'd miscounted the ballots. Nobody knows exactly when the count will proceed. And in another story, increased spending on students, new funding for LGBTQ equity programs, restoring pandemic-era cuts to cultural institutions and libraries, and another $500 million invested in the city's new rainy day emergency fund. These are some of the initiatives that city leaders touted at a news conference today, announcing a $98.7 billion budget deal for the fiscal year beginning that begins tomorrow. Mayor Bill de Blasio and Speaker Corey Johnson each described the budget, which was approved by the city council, as a victory for working-class New Yorkers. The $225 million added to the NYPD budget reflects $166 million to cover overtime. So there's an increase of money that's been added to the NYPD budget and not a uh, uh, defunding of the police has often been accused. Uh, they've, inc- In fact, as I just reported, added 225 billion dollars and reflected 166 million that is and reflected 166 million dollars to cover overtime 47 million dollars to cover information technology investments and 12 million dollars to fund a march police reform bill. The the bill also includes funding for community-focused violence prevention programs, which de Blasio described as investments in public safety that would fuel an economic recovery. But not everybody was happy with the results. The mother of Amadou Diallo, who was killed in a hail of police bullets in 1999 as as he stood in his own stoop, is Carriado Diallo. She says the city council should have cut the NYPD budget.
5: I call on the
1: city council to vote no on a a budget that gives more dollars to the NYPD instead to give more funding to communities to fund programs,
2: uh, youth summer jobs and mental health programs. Don't put any more money in NYPD, put that money in our community needs. Mental health support, housing, better jobs for the future generation.
0: And that's Kediatu Diallo, the mother of Amadou Diallo, who was killed by the NYPD in a hail of bullets in 1999. But one of the budget's authors, Upper West Side Council member Helen Rosenthal, says it's a good budget that doesn't cut money for cops, but finances new community policing strategies.
5: We voted on the budget today, so it's been passed into law. Now people can spend time looking inside to see what's there. The reason I'm so happy with it is because it really speaks to this moment when we say we're going to describe public safety in a much more holistic way. We're going to describe public safety and include social services, health care, mental health services, good education, pre-K, housing, keeping people in their homes, access to parks, making the city better in those ways. And boy, this city has that all over the place. So that's why I'm excited about the budget. I think we understood what has been going on the last two years with communities that are over-policed but under-protected. Instead of sending in more police, what we're doing is funding the programs that will, we hope, address the real needs of the community. Alika Ampree Samuel, a council member from Brownsville, pleaded with her local police precinct and got them to agree to step back for a week on the most dangerous street most dangerous section where there had been shootings every day. She got them to agree to step back and instead they had violence interrupters, former gang members who are talking to people who might commit violence but held them back. They provided community services, social services, food, access to health care etc. And that was the one week where there were absolutely no shootings. It was the safest week in that area. It happened because police took a backseat to the social service programs. What I'm so excited about is in this budget, we put the emphasis on making sure there were violence interrupter programs, cure violence programs mental health services, et cetera.
0: So we're not going to hear Tucker Carlson tonight saying New York defunded the police.
5: I can't see how they could say that. We did not defund. We did not really increase funding. We're projecting the amount of overtime in the police budget to be the same next year as it was this year. The head count is staying roughly the same. I think it's going up by 23 The size of the total budget increased minimally to cover the cost of new mental health ambassadors that will come from the police department.
0: And that's Upper West Side Council Member Helen Rosenthal. It's the city's largest ever budget, buoyed by infusions and stimulus funding, including $14.2 billion from the federal government. And in more local news, retired teachers, sanitation workers, hospital workers, office workers, and firefighters who spent their careers working for New York City marched today through the financial district. They protested the city's plan to move 250,000 retirees from traditional government-run Medicare to a privately-run Medicare Advantage plan. Clark Adamitis has the story.
6: Retirees are angry about the city's plans to take away their Medicare, which they set aside money for throughout their careers. The City Office of Labor Relations and the Municipal Labor Committee are negotiating with the goal of saving the city $600 million, but at the expense of fixed-income city retirees. They're demanding to keep the public health care insurance benefits they were promised and a moratorium on current negotiations for this plan.
7: We're having a rally to let the Municipal Labor Committee and uh, the New York City know that we don't want them to go forward with their plans to privatize our retiree Medicare benefits, which is exactly what they're uh, trying to do right now.
6: Bennett Fisher is a retiree in the United Federation of Teachers, and he's in the Retiree Advocate Caucus.
7: With the city's plan to switch to a privatized Medicare Advantage plan will diminish the benefits that we get, it will restrict the doctors and networks that we can use, and it will lead to higher out-of-pocket costs for various services. Retirees who spent their whole lives working for the city of New York and paying into that system with their labor sweat and their labor blood, they won't get the benefits for which they sacrificed salary for all those years.
6: Norman Scott is a retired New York City teacher who was part of the UFT. He says that there is a general move out of publicly controlled systems into private profit-making systems.
0: This is not only happening in healthcare; it's happening in education with the movement of charter schools. It's a general trend. The entire world has moved in the direction of public control of health care systems, and they pay half the amount that we do. In essence, the union is choosing the profit of the healthcare industry over our interest. Yeah.
6: Vincent Voichness is a retired New York City teacher. He's been a chapter leader in the UFT for eight years.
1: Every dime that goes to profit is money that's not going into health care. That point has to be driven across. I think people got to be convinced of what's going on.
6: The UFT believes the deadline for these negotiations is July 1st. But Michael Mulgrew, president of the UFT, tells the teachers that there is no deadline. He has assured them that he may not go ahead with the plan. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York.
0: Thanks, Clark.